Welcome to The Deep Cut, an almost weekly podcast where we go deeper into Sunday's sermon, plus some other subjects of spiritual and theological interest that may come up from time to time. I'm your host, Derek Swetman, and I'll be joined often by Lindsay Self and some other guests along the way, people like scholars and experts and the stuff that we'll talk about. So welcome aboard, and I pray these episodes are helpful to you and your ongoing spiritual and theological formation. Let's get into this week's topic. All right, so I'm joined here by my friend, Ryan Snyder. Glad to be here. (laughs) This is our first Deep Cut podcast of the summer, so we're going to do these almost weekly. I can't commit to every week because I'll fail you. But um, if you're new to the Deep Cut podcast, if you'd never heard of them, we just recap Sunday. We talked a little deeper about the topic, and this week we talked about communion uh, so we're going to talk about that, the Lord's Supper, the Mass, the Eucharist, all those names. And um, so I'm excited to have Ryan here. It's weird. I was thinking about this the other day, actually. You guys have almost been here a year. Yeah, almost a year, I think. It may have been mid-August. Mm-hmm. And then I came one one week. You got COVID the next. Yep. And then you healed from COVID. And I said, let's get coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and then have not left. Yeah. So you're stuck. I think that's great. Yeah. And y'all just sort of found us like driving by, right? Yeah, a mixture of driving by. So my wife works at Tech, so yeah. we're in the neighborhood. And then we Googled you and uh, checked out a sermon or two. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I'm always leery of like, uh, we listen to a couple of sermons. I'm like, which ones? Which ones, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I should curate those on iTunes, like which ones you could listen to. Yeah. So Greatest hits right here. Yeah. So you just recently got your doctorate from Emory Counter School of Theology, but which is a Methodist seminary, and your background is Methodist. I think you kind of did Methodist all the way through, right? You did Lagrange College, Duke University, Candler, and then Candler. Yep, all Methodist right? schools. Yep, which wasn't intentional, but it just happened that way. Yeah, um, went to Lagrange because it felt right. I mean, I know the reason of that. And then Duke, I was interested in some of the people who were working there, teaching there. Who was your, because I'm familiar with several Duke scholars and professors, who were your favorite? So, yeah, I went because um, the whole school, at least at the time, and maybe not as much anymore, but was heavily influenced by Howard Wass and his way of thinking through the Christian life. Um, That was the major draw, and then I was a big Methodist nerd at the time, so they had some big heavy hitters in the Methodist world, Randy Maddox and Richard Heisenrader were the two I wanted to hear from. Um, yeah, other than that, those were the main ones I was there for. So and then you, they had a good basketball team, so they, I could catch some two games on the weekend. They do. So did you take classes with Howard Wass? By the time I was there, he was mostly doing PhD seminars. He was kind of on the way out. So yeah. as much as a seminar in Wittgenstein sounded appealing, I was like, I'm not getting in there with those PhD students. So I was a little too afraid to yeah. take those classes. I always liked Howard Ross because he was always just, at least in panels and interviews, like he was always the grumpy guy, yeah. but kind of in a funny way. Yeah. Yeah. He is super funny. Um, yeah. Also very mad and angry. <laughs> He's the only person I ever saw make fun of Henry Nowen's wounded healer. You got to tell me more. Yeah. I mean, like, he was doing a seminar and he made a snarky remark like, I know, I know, wounded healer. And then everybody laughed. I need to go back and watch it. But I just remember thinking, 
Who does that? Who goes after now one? Who makes fun of now one? Yeah, you know? no one goes after. But Nowen. I guess he does. Yeah. yeah. So. No one's safe. And then you went to Candler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was um, started that basically during COVID and uh, wrote it out during three years. Yeah. COVID, uh, so never really went to campus until like a year ago. So weird. So, and you know they were very strict with. Yeah. Precautions, so we weren't on campus at all. Well, especially there being like a hospital. Yeah. yeah <laughs> medical sure. school, you know. So wow, well, cool. Is your background? I mean, I guess you you grew up Methodist. Is that true? Is that right? Grew up Methodist. Was was baptized Lutheran actually. Oh. Yeah, my dad was Lutheran. My mom was Methodist. My mom's dad was a Methodist pastor. Yeah. So when we moved outside of Savannah, there was no Lutheran community there, really, looking for a new church. The Methodist church was a good fit, sort of stayed stayed put yeah. throughout high school. That's interesting. Yeah. I have, I was telling you this earlier, but I have very little knowledge of Methodism. Um, I mean, other than just the basics that you learn about when you learn church history, American church history. Um, but as far as like communion goes, because that's our topic, um, and the Methodist church, how does that work? Cause I actually don't know what the rhythms are, what the systems of belief are or whatever. If there's guardrails, like, I don't know what, what they do or don't do. Yeah. Um, I might get in trouble by the Methodist nerds for saying this, but John Wesley was, was not a great theologian. At least I don't think he was. Uh, you heard it, it here first. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> in terms of coming up with something novel or like a new way of thinking about communion, he was a great synthesizer. So he brought together different streams of tradition, I think, that um, sort of not conflicted but didn't cohere extremely well. He was able to, to put them together. Um, so Wesley didn't really write anything, particularly on communion. The best theological... Um, ex- exploration of communion we have are their hymns. And so we get most of our theology from the hymns that his brother Charles wrote. Yeah. Um, and so if I could situate Methodism in sort of the Re- Reformation tradition, I'd put it like this. So, of course, you've got the Catholics who believe in communion, the elements become the physical body and blood of Christ, transubstantiation. Uh, the physical attributes remain the same, so it's bread and wine, but that inner substance becomes actually Christ. And then you've got Luther, who pushed back against that for a couple different reasons, but he argued for this kind of consubstantiation where Christ is with Mm -hmm. the bread and the wine, Christ is in, but with and then under the elements. Um, You know, Luther would say Christ is everywhere, right? Christ is in my bowl of pea soup, (laughs) but also in the bread and the wine. And then you have someone like Calvin who said... uh, that Jesus can only be one place. And so Jesus is there at the hand of the Father. And so what you have in communion is really this experience with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit allows you to commune with Christ who's in the heavenly sphere. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this Winglian kind of Anabaptist tradition who wants to say that this meal is particularly a remembrance. And in this remembrance, you're sort of representing the sacrifice that took place once and for all. And so Methodism, in that kind of sphere is similar to Luther and Calvin in that Christ is present, mm-hmm. but what you're really experiencing is the Holy Spirit, and mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit is there connecting you to um, to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But there's less of an emphasis on the bread and the wine. It's like mm-hmm. throughout the entire service, you're experiencing this Christ 
uh, through the Holy Spirit. He was feeding you, sustaining you, making you look more like Jesus. And Wesley was like the kind of guy who took communion daily. So it was on his routine. He was an Anglican pastor uh, in the tradition of at least taking it weekly, but if he could, he would take it daily. And throughout time, especially when Methodism moved to America, there was this hesitation to take it daily, and I don't know the specifics of how this came about, but for a long time, we took communion quarterly, so four times a year. Yep. And then people began to push back against that, and now Methodists are on this schedule, most of them anyway, where we take it the first of the month. So the first Sunday of the month, you can expect to, you can expect to take communion, which I've seen a trend in Methodist churches where we're beginning to take it more often. Mm-hmm. Um, why not? If Christ is present in yeah. some real way, why aren't you there at least <laughs> weekly? Um, so that's the short of, of what's happening with communion. Yeah. I think the Baptists do that too, like a quarterly, always on Easter. And then throughout the year, there's a couple more times, but they don't do it weekly either. Um, yeah. And I wonder theologically, if you're thinking, I mean, if like many Baptists, if you think communion is merely a symbol mm-hmm. or some, um, just a remembrance rather than this real presence, there's not as much of a need to be there weekly. Yeah, especially if it's a pushback against any sort of Catholicism around the elements of the bread and the wine becoming the body of Christ, yeah. which is a hairball topic. Um, and yeah, it could be easily issued, that, you know, just like, well, we don't want to deal with that, but we know it's important because Jesus did the Last Supper, you know, whatever the thinking is. Um, so, yeah. Whereas we, in our movement, it's always been a central weekly practice, which at the time you're talking about the 19th century at the time, that's very, very Catholic move to do it weekly. Um, Cause I don't know the ins and outs of all the other traditions and what they were doing. You know, uh, I don't know that very accurately, but to do it every week was a kind of a statement, you know, sort of a weird, like we're a Protestant, movement and yet we're borrowing this weekly practice but without the baggage of the topic of does the bread become the body of Jesus does the wine become the blood of Jesus or whatever uh, the arguments are so it's it's interesting and I was telling you earlier before we started recording like in it's interesting because in most of the Christian churches communion is before the sermon so it's it's important but the the teaching is always the most important thing at least, Apparently, they're not saying that, but you can tell because sermons are 30, 40 minutes and communion is passed down the aisle in a cup. It's very quick. Um, they don't use a liturgical approach. It, there's usually like we're sort of known for communion meditations. So it's almost like a mini homily. Somebody gets up and does a five minute thing about the baseball team they coach. And isn't that just what Jesus did? Um, in the communion, and then they pass the trays, and then you're on to the sermon, and then usually you're done. Um, whereas there is a shift to push it. What, what's the word? Like, I guess just after the sermon is a more of a focus. Like the sermon sort of pours into that uh, and leads people. So the sermon becomes like the communion meditation in a right. way. Um, so there's definitely a resurgence in that. But yeah, yeah, I wonder too if the church is beginning to push back on the kind of over-intellectualization of the church. You know, we have the sermon, and we meet the the Christ through our intellect, and then we realize that we're more than just our brains, in a way. Yeah. And so the the bread and the wine 
gives us this embodied experience of Christ. That yes. We're starting to realize that I think postmodernity that we're yeah. more than our brains, right? That we experience the world through our bodies. Um, yeah. You're not uh, extracted from that. Yeah. And I think too, like, and maybe this is another topic, but we just live in such an information based world now that if the sermon is just information, it's just another noise. It's another piece of noise, you know, but nobody in their daily life is standing in line and hearing someone say something to them when they give them bread and juice. And, um, so that is a very different thing, but somebody getting up and talking about things, that's all we do now. That's what we do. It's social media, it's news, it's everything. We're just sharing information. And, uh, so I don't know if the sermon will change over time because of that. Um, I don't know. I haven't thought much about that, but that's a great topic. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, so back to the Methodist practice, is it, we come forward to receive it. Is that what they do there? Or do they pass it? Like, or is it just different from church to church? Yeah, it differs from church to church. Uh, most most churches are fairly similar to the way that Atlanta Christian practices it. So it's intinction, which means mm-hmm. you come forward. Uh, I think the, the main difference is we receive rather than take. Yes. Um, but yeah, so you, you, you receive a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, Welch's, who was actually a Methodist. And then... Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. And then you Perfect. partake of the elements in that way. Yeah. So yeah, Welch was... This is a story. I've never confirmed it, so you can get some <laughs> fact-checkers out there. Okay. But, uh, yeah, the story goes that he was a Methodist, and he wanted to provide an alternative to wine for those who are struggling with yeah. you know, alcohol. And so That is interesting. Yeah, it, was, it was a liturgical development. This yeah. Welch's grape juice. Yeah. It is the, because we do get asked sometimes about why is it not wine, and we it's the exact same reason. Yeah. You know, just because as a pastor, I know there's people in the room that, like, they don't need that tipping point in the communion. So that's why we do it that way. Yeah. I know that in the Episcopal churches, they'll mix it with water. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that done, but like when they're preparing the communion, there's water as well. And they mix the two maybe to dilute it, I guess. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's very interesting. And you can see it in like, um, well, the Justin Martyr quote that I read on Sunday from the second century, he talks about that too, the bread and the wine and the water come out and then they mix uh, so maybe that was happening then too. It might just be tradition. Right, I don't know, right. but it certainly would dilute it. Yeah. Um, maybe kill the taste. I don't know. I don't know. I don't do this in my home. Water down wine. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, um, come forward, receive it. Very few churches will have you kneel at the altar. They have groups at a time that will kneel and they come and go bang, 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 bang. Yep. Disperse them. Yep. You set, kneel at the altar. Yep. Uh, I think let's do that now just because it's not as efficient. It takes longer, and we're we're ready to get on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's pros and cons, I think, of every way of doing it. Uh, there's something cool about kneeling at the altar and having yep. uh, set-aside time. Uh, but, yeah, it just takes forever. Yeah, when we've visited, like, again, back to, like, an Episcopal church, it's, I mean, our communion here is, it's probably from the time we start the liturgy to the time it's done, it's probably a 10-minute venture. But, man, they can take... It can be 12, 15 minutes, you know, especially if they go through like the longer liturgy and then people come forward, like you said, they kneel, they're passing out the stuff. And then that crew leaves and another crew comes. It's like, I, I kind of like how it's just, um, 
it flies in the face of efficiency. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, this is what we're here for. So you might as well take it all in, I guess. It's interesting. Yeah. And one other difference I've, I've thought about is, so some Methodists can be very strict about the liturgy and they want to make sure you have all the main parts of the liturgy. So you begin with the communion, with the, conf- the confession, which we do and passing of the peace, and then you move on to like great thanksgiving, and then there's anamnesis, which is the remembrance, mm-hmm. where you say, on the night which is betrayed, mm-hmm. and then there's an epiclesis, where you invoke the Holy Spirit, descend Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and wine, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they want to make sure you hit every single part of that. And oh, if you okay. don't, there's sort of a... It doesn't really count as it's, communion. So I'm not familiar, because we use the Book of Common Prayer. Is it the same in the Methodist Church? They use the same liturgies, or is it a little different? It's pretty much the same. Yeah. 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 Very similar. Yeah. And it's not always the same every week. I mean, some of the parts will change, right? So you'll, in the Great Thanksgiving, you might tell a different story if it's Advent rather than Easter. You might make some connections to Christ's birth instead of whatever else. Yeah. Sometimes I do get questions from people about um, why we do the spoken liturgy together. I don't always have a great answer other than... Um, it's a way to, and I said this in the sermon a little bit, I didn't reference this piece, but like, it's a way of being unified. I think with the church at large, you know, like we're all sort of saying these things together each week in some way, shape or form. And then, um, it also, for me anyway, guards against, I don't know, just going off the rails with trying to explain what we're about to do. And instead we sort of drop into like a historical stream of, of, of things that you say. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a great answer for it other than maybe tradition union with churches around the world. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's right. Uh, when I think about it, it's, it's one of the few moments that you do actually feel unified in the church. Uh, communion can, it's a communal activity, but sometimes it feels very individualistic like you're walking toward and you're you're at the altar, self-checkout, um, you get your individualized piece of bread and juice. And so what be, what is a communal meal feels like an individual um, practice. And so at least that liturgy brings us together and sort of a commonality of what we're doing. It helps you pay attention to, I think, yeah. um, rather than zoning out during some liturgy that can go on forever, it seems like. So if you have some communal pieces, it sort of brings everyone together. Yeah. I think, too, rituals can be comforting. And so saying the same words week after week is kind of life-giving. Mm-hmm. That becomes sort of a poetry for your soul. Yeah, that's good. It's a teaching tool as well because the more you say these things each and every week, it begins to shape how you, I guess, how you interpret the moment. You know, like, because we do the same prayer of confession, absolution prayer, um, all of that. I think people not only memorize, I mean, they're memorizing it. It's funny to watch. I mean, we've done it for many, many years uh, as a church. I mean, maybe 11 years we've been doing this uh, in this way. And you can see people, especially if I'm not leading the liturgy and someone's doing the prayer of confession, I see people just, they just know it. They don't even have to look at the wall anymore, you know. And so it's becoming a part of their prayer language. Um, that prayer never gets old either. 
there's always something in there that you're like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's a sense where you hope that the prayers you say weekly be, be, become kind of the prayer of your life in, mm-hmm. in another way. So, you know, the habits that you enact week after week in worship hopefully will make a change in you, whether you realize it or not, to yeah. where you are approaching every meal with confession and thanksgiving. Um, you are giving praise when you're gathered around the table with people. Um, yeah. And that every bite of food you take sort of becomes sacramental in that way. So, it, it, yeah, my hope is, and maybe this, Duke had a way where they thought that communion could fix everything, which I sort of pushed back against. But oh, really? Like <laughs> yeah. what? What do you mean? They're just very sacramental. Yeah. So the answer to every question was Eucharist. You just got to do the Eucharist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's a sense where I hope that the Eucharist sort of shapes us in a way where we we live in a way that we couldn't live otherwise. But, um, yeah, I sometimes wonder how much of that we're really ingesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you think they, that comes from, like, just the idea of sharing a table with anybody? Or, like, is that what that's coming from? Like, the Duke thing, back to that. Like, is it just, if we just learn to eat together, then things would be better? Yeah, that's kind of like the Hauerwasian, um emphasis on habits and rituals and yeah. the ways that worship should form you to be such a way where you live counter oh, to see. the world. Yeah, And some of that, I think, has been disproven. But um, yeah, do you, I still do hope that our worship forms us in a way that we live in this counter-politic to the world, yeah. a different way of eating together, a different way of being together, Yeah, um, where, the, where the world looks at you and they know who they are because you are not them, Yeah, in a way. I see. Yeah, yeah. that rings a bell. One of the interesting things, and we can talk about this for a few minutes, is these liturgies that we do, these structures that we have around communion, these are not original to the ancient church. I mean, these developed over time. I mean, Jesus didn't resurrect, and then the church gathers, and they're like, let's do the prayer of confession, and they all do the thing, you know? Because the Book of Common Prayer is what? Less than 600 years old? And, um, I mean, we have iterations of this in sort of the Catholic prayer book. I mean... The, the Episcopal prayer book is is kind of a version of that, you know, so you can find some similarities, but it's it's not original to the Apostle Paul. It's not original to any of those churches. It developed over time, and um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on why these liturgies developed. You know, we did the First Corinthians text on Sunday a little bit. It was It was at least a reading, and what Paul was addressing in there is like, um, th- things were deteriorating away from the focus, you know. So his complaint against the church there was, I mean, you're doing communion, but it's just turned into a meal. You're just you're just eating together, which is, I get it because when people are like, well, "We'll just do church at home," it's like that works for about four weeks, and then it's just like, who's bringing the eggs? You know, uh, the focus is gone. And so I wonder sometimes if liturgies developed as a way to guardrail that, you know, to where like it's a more focused time, you know, like we're doing all these things, but let's remember, we're here to kind of remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which is evident or present in the communion. So um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, not really. (laughs) (laughs) I, I do think there's this human propensity to try to explain mystery. And so over the years, just trying to work out all of the <coughs> questions on what we're actually doing, you know, if, if Christ is present, how is Christ present? If Christ is present in this way, then we ought to be doing A, B, C, D. Right. Uh, you know, Paul's got this 
line about, you know, you should not come to the table unchecked, basically. Right. And so they're like, oh, we better add in a prayer of confession so we're thinking about ourselves. So, yeah, I, th- <laughs> yeah, I think there's these guardrails that do arise just over time as we continue to think about what we're doing more deeply. I do sometimes think that we, we put too many guardrails <laughs> and yeah. instead of trying to explain, you know, everything that's happening, just leave it sort of open for this experience of mystery, mm-hmm. um, which is what sacrament kind of is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to be comfortable not explaining what's happening mm-hmm. and how and why, but it is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I think you're right. Because, yeah, what Paul does to that in that letter to the church is that he senses a, a deterioration of focus. And so what he does is he, he puts a kind of structure at him, you know, he doesn't tell him what to say or anything, but he's just like, these are some structural things. Um, and you can, you can see the beginnings of, of a liturgy there where he's like on the night he was betrayed, you know, mm-hmm. which is things what we say. And then he goes through the, the passion sort of in a short form. Um, but then there is that, you brought this up, that interesting section is a large section about not taking the communion in an unworthy manner. Um, always been a mystery. Like, what is he talking about? And I've heard so many different, you know, you're sinful. People think, you know, that, that's what it is. It's like, well, then nobody can take it. Um, is it, uh, yeah. I mean, have you thought about that? <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's I, I a think, big, big section. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that. And I, I do wonder if that's, the main scriptural foundation for those who are scared to take communion. Yeah. Because they're scared to be unworthy. But then, you know, like you said, we all can't take it. I often hear that uh, verse also with those who don't um, practice open table, but they close a table to those who are baptized. And in that in that argument, they would say, you know, we're doing them a grace right. to not allow them to take the table, come to the table um, unworthy. And that's an early development. I mean, even in the Justin Martyr quote that I read on Sunday about the service, he does talk about communion later in that same, um, in that same writing. And he's a closed table guy, you know, and I don't know how you pronounce this, but the Didache, is that right? That's what I say. Didache. I don't know what they call it, (laughs) but you know, all evidence points to that being a very early document for Christian worship. And it, it requires a closed table. Um, it doesn't say why, but it just does. And so I, it's, it's interesting that the church went that direction quickly, but you do see like traditions in early Christianity where like people, candidates for baptism had to leave before communion. You know, they could stay for the word, but not the table. And, um, and, and, you know, the baptism is their really first communion, you know, that kind of thing. So it is interesting that it developed quickly in that direction. I, I don't really know why. Yeah, so I'm an open table kind of guy, and I can talk more about that. You yeah. are too, obviously. But yeah. the, the one the one angle that makes sense to me is that if you practice baptism as the, you know, the major act that incorporates the body into Christ, then the Eucharist, therefore, becomes sort of the communal meal. And it's restricted to those who have been baptized. It's their mm-hmm. family meal. Those who have been incorporated in Christ will feed into Christ mm-hmm. in this way. 
And so I think when you keep that strong sacramentology, the baptism and Eucharist together, it kind of makes sense to me. Um, the, the family initiatory rite and the family meal. Um, but to me, when you look at Jesus, I think that sort of I have a emphasis on, on Christ and reading the Bible, so I read the Bible through that lens, kind of Christocentric lens. He ate with everyone, mm-hmm. didn't ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were hungry, you could come to the table. Mm-hmm. And that's a Methodist thing to do as well, but I think also in our church here. Yeah. And our church, you know, churches in our tradition, they they differ on it. Um, but it's rarely heard in our churches, hey, if you haven't been baptized, don't come down and take, you know, they don't, they don't really say that. And there's actually history in our movement of... Um, and our founders like theologies around communion where they talk about what they call the pious unimmersed. And, um, and again, it, there's variations of it, but basically the, 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 the central piece here is that I'm not going to disbar somebody because they haven't been baptized. They may just not know that they should be baptized. And that's just what they don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, and that's a simplified explanation, but the pious unimmersed is a, a really big phrase in our movement. Um, therefore it doesn't make much sense to card people at the table because you don't really know their heart. Um, and so there's an openness there, but at the same time, you can find churches in our tradition that are more strict about that. Um, but in all the ones I've been in, and I've been in many, no one, I've never really heard the leader say, if you haven't been X, Y, and Z, then don't come forward. Um, even in the Episcopal churches and Anglican churches, they'll say all are welcome, but you can't take if you haven't, you know, been bad. we'll give you a blessing, you know, that kind of thing. So I don't yeah, know. That, that's, yeah, I think that's why uh, I favor the open table is what are you actually doing there if not blessing people and right. giving them Christ? Um, and, to, and to me, Christ is less worried about you know, this, the state of your heart and more worried about you receiving yeah. grace and mercy. Yeah, because your heart's going to change all the time. Yeah. yeah, I think it was Luke Timothy Johnson in his book on the Creed said something like, it's a great passage. Uh, I should have just had it ready. But basically he says, the reason we say we believe in the Creed is because we don't always all believe at once. And um, the state of your belief changes here and there. And, but we say this together in the hopes that one day he says, uh, that the, I believe will be as strong as the, we believe. And so there's a real sense of, we are doing this together and, uh, there's a unity there and a family atmosphere there. And so I also had a professor tell me, um, years ago, cause I asked him about open table. He's like, well, we kind of do open table, but I did have a moment where I was afraid I was doing something wrong. And this guy's a great scholar and he talked to me and he's like, well, you know, one of the great Jewish practices was to invite Gentiles to the Passover. Uh, this is known. I mean, they, they do it. And, um, and they're not Jewish, but they're, they're welcome. And he's like, I've always seen it as you're just welcoming people to the Christian Passover, whether they understand it, completely or not. And he used the last supper as a reference point. Like nobody at that table had a clue as to what was happening. And let's not forget that Judas received as well. And, you know, Jesus served him, um, 
food. And so knowing that this guy was up to no good. And so it's, yeah, it's hard. It So combining that with the Luke Timothy Johnson sort of idea, it's like everybody is in flux. And so to determine who can come and who can't is really a fool's errand because you just don't really, because there can be times when I'm doing the liturgy and I'm in a real bad season, you know, do I take communion? Well, I probably need it more than so. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we've always erred on the side of just being open. Um, we had an associate that worked here for a while and he said, he always said when he did communion liturgy that this is the Lord's table, not ours, which I think a lot of people say, but it does, it's, it's a simple, but it makes great sense. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting. You think of that, you made me think of that scripture where Jesus is like, yeah, um, invite ABCD. They're not going to come. Right. So then now you go out into the alleys, the streets and compel these people to come. Bring I mean, them all the worst in. of the worst, right? Yeah. Come feast at the Lord's banquet. I was reading, um, you probably know who Ben Witherington is, but he wrote a like a social commentary on Corinthians. It's a pretty hefty book, but he ten, he tended to think or tends to think that when Paul was talking about communion with the Corinthians, that there was a practice in Greco-Roman culture of they would do a, a gathering, I guess annually, I can't remember, where they flipped the script on social norms and they invited the poor, the criminal, all the sorts of, I mean, and nobody had a seat of honor. They did this, you know, and what Paul was advocating for communion is that yeah. kind of referencing this, like, but do this all the time, you know, that the table is open for everyone. Yeah. I think that, yeah, with Paul, there's definitely this, I mean, communion was not just spiritual grace. It was also this political, almost um, economic mm-hmm. leveling of people. You know, the rich and the poor gathering together, and you're eating the same meal. No one is eating earlier than another. Mm-hmm. No one is eating more than another. Mm-hmm. And so there's almost, and the way I love this passage is, like, you can't eat the bread and the wine and just receive spiritual nourishment. It's In some way, it's going to affect the way you're, you're physically living your life and overturning the economic um, boundaries we have between one another. Yeah. And I think that's something that Yoder, he's a John Howard, he's a Mennonite theologian, really focuses on that I find mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. Is that not only are we just receiving spirituality, but we're 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 learning a new way of being community together at this mm-hmm. table. Mm-hmm. Which sometimes I think we can miss by doing communion the way we do it, not having a full meal. Right. Um, and just coming through the line. You're not yeah. really getting that. Um you're not really getting those barriers being broken down and the walls totally. between you. Like the person behind me, I have no idea what their economic status is. <laughs> No. Likely they have enough bread, but I wouldn't know if they didn't. That's right. Yeah. It's true. And that's, I think I said that on Sunday, like, I think the early apostles would be like, what are you doing in here? You know, like, <laughs> why are we lining up and taking a piece of bread and walking back to our seats? And I get that. And it's one of the reasons here, at least, and churches do this all over, but like we, we have a heavy emphasis on like fellowship events and meals. And, you know, when we bought this building, it was like, oh my gosh, we have a fellowship hall, you know? we have a place to eat together and whether we do breakfasts before church or lunches after church or whatever, like we see those as almost like, um, communion moments, you know, where even we did shaved ice on Sunday, you know, after church, cause you know, it's hot outside and 
going down into that room after church and just seeing I, the first thing I do is just look around. It's like, who's sitting with who, you know? Yeah. This is really cool. They don't know each other. They're learning about each other. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing, but yeah, I think that's missed in the way we do it. And even before worship, I mean, you have to beg people to come in <laughs> because everyone's scattered about the building, talking, sharing snacks, donuts, coffee. They are. Um, and that's Eucharistic, I think. It is. Yeah. You almost have to let people, I mean, people get on my case all the time. Uh, if you just started on time, they they come in. I'm like, that's just not true. Yeah. Like, I, we've done it both ways. You know, we've, we've been lax about start time. We started exactly on time. People were still milling about, like you said. And I don't find any, it doesn't anger me at all. It doesn't frustrate me at all that people are outside still when we're starting the songs and uh, catching yeah, up with Yeah, I mean, people. to me, all that worship has already begun. That's right. I mean, it doesn't begin when someone walks to the front and says, Welcome. I mean, people mm-hmm. are already worshiping as mm-hmm. they're gathering, sharing snacks, mm-hmm. coffee. That's worship. So mm-hmm. that's right. We start as soon as people arrive. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's kind of like all I have. Okay. <laughs> Unless you have some amazing information to share. No, I mean, um, no, it's great. Yeah. I'm a fan of weekly communion. <laughs> because look, as a pastor, this was always comforting to me. If the sermon doesn't hit, then... You have that. At least they're you're falling back on communion. They're gonna get. They're the getting gospel. something. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, we didn't talk about transubstantiation, but I don't think anybody has a a market on that. It's a yeah. really hard topic. We've so. got we've got Catholics in the room though, so we do. And I always love how. And I need to actually tell my communion servers this because I served the bread this past Sunday, and if if someone came through the line and there are many and they have their hands cupped out, like I just give it to them because that's what they're expecting. That's their tradition. Um, you know, and just letting our servers know, like people take it in different ways. So just keep an eye out for these few things, you know, they come from different traditions and, um, but there's a, there's a segment in the room that grew up in a, in a tradition where you hand there, they receive rather than take. And, um, it's just kind of fun to see what comes down the aisle. Yeah, and I've said this before, but I think that's one of my favorite parts of worshiping at Atlanta Christian is right there in the line, you'll have a Catholic followed by you know, Presbyterian, lapsed Methodist, mm-hmm. um, a Congregationalist, mm-hmm. and they're all receiving in different ways, mm-hmm. and there's this great mystery surrounding it, mm-hmm. but no one's barred from the table. I that's mean, we're, right. all, we're all partaking of Christ's body and blood, yeah. thinking we're doing something different <laughs> right? in some ways, but still receiving Christ all the that's same. That's right. We had, uh, for a while, they moved away, but we, we actually had a couple of like Jewish people that came to church here because they were just curious. And they got involved. They were like on host team and like just doing things. They were just part of the church, but still just like investigating. And there was one Sunday when this lady just jumped in line to take communion. And uh, I just remember serving not her first time, but when, when I was serving and she came forward, I mean, just almost this, like, I don't know why I'm here, but thank you for the bread. You know, like she's just doing the motions and, uh, it was just always so funny because you're, it, it, that has not ceased to be the reality for us. It's like, you just don't even know who's coming down the aisle. And, um, like you said, people from different backgrounds, but also people who like, they don't even know what they're involving themselves in, but there's something that's drawing them to that. Um, and so it, it, sometimes I'll get like, like you said, you'll get the Catholic, the Episcopal, the Methodist, and then I'll have the guy that's like, 
you take the bread and then tell me cool shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just exactly. no reverence for the moment at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I just find that great. It's fine. Yeah. So, but yeah. yeah. I have one last question. Yeah. You can edit this out if you don't like it. Okay. But um, what do you think about digital communion? What is that? You know, like during COVID. Oh. When, when people would do communion digitally. Yep. So, I mean. So we so, did that. Okay. When uh, our church did Zoom for COVID, I mean, we did like a month of YouTube stuff and it was terrible. So we canned that and then we said, well, let's just do Zoom because we can do breakout rooms and people can talk. And we did that and it was, it really was fun. But usually what we would do is send out a PDF of the bulletin that had the songs in it and our band would record songs up here prior and then we would just show those videos. Um, there'd be a sermon, very short, and then a breakout room where people talked and then we come back and then we actually just did the liturgy for the communion. And what we told people in the like Friday email was like, don't forget to have your communion prepared. And so we would all take it. It was funny at first, like all these squares on the screen, just like taking communion and, and also seeing what people prepared for communion. Like, is that a donut and coffee? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then there's my wife who bought like a tiny little communion set. So I had these like wooden chalices and like a little bread plate. Yeah. It was just funny. But yeah, we Very did, reverent. <laughs> we did that for 18 months. Yeah. So yeah, it became I don't know if we at the time we saw it as weird as more as just we saw it as like this is just what we have to, what do. We have to do. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, it's it's been a big argument in Methodist circles and I'm sure other circles too, but yeah, to me the church has always been virtual to some degree. We mm-hmm. we claimed it feast with people who are dead. Like mm-hmm. that's right. They're not there with us physically in the room, but we're somehow still feasting with them. So that's right. What does it matter if you're doing it over Wi-Fi? Like, no. Know. And I yeah. guess you, you bring up a good point, I guess, with our Zoom crowd, which we have a few each week. Mostly they're just sick or out of town, but maybe reminding them to do that too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just I'm not back there, so I don't I don't ever think about it. So anyway, that's a good question. I'm for it. Cool. Whatever works. Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here. It was fun. It's been great. We should probably go rescue Lindsay from from your, my children, from your children downstairs. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of that snow cone machine a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, they're hyped up on <laughs> sugar going, now. Yeah. All right, thank you very much. All right, see ya.